Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Emerson Green. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Randall Rouser about his new book, The Doubter's Creed, How to Be a Christian When You Don't Believe It's True. You might know Randall from his appearances on other channels discussing apologetics and a few of his other books, including Jesus Loves Canaanites, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, and An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar, co-authored with Justin Schieber of Relay Theology. So, Randall, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Emerson. So you talk in the book about how Christianity is a uniquely creedal religion. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, I begin the Doubter's Creed by talking about uh, this idea of, so a creed is a confession of belief, of doctrine. And Christianity, I mean, every religion, every belief system is going to have some doctrines or some beliefs, but Christianity is pretty unique in this regard. To give the illustration of Yaroslav Pelikan, he was a great Lutheran church historian later on, before the end of his life, he was um, Eastern Orthodox. He compiled a book some years ago, about 20 years ago, called Credo, which is a collection of several hundred creeds from the Christian tradition. And the book is over 600 pages, and it's a very select history of creeds. From the beginning, Christians have been drawing up these lists of uh, sets of beliefs that they hold of what it def- means to be a Christian, how their community should be defined in terms of belief commitments. And the focus on creeds, while again, every religious community has some kind of creed, Christianity is pretty unique in the emphasis it has and in, in the level of detail it often requires of those who are Christian. And so that can create a challenge when a person may want to identify as Christian or be interested in Christianity and yet see the creeds as a seemingly insurmountable wall of beliefs that they have to acquire in order to be part of this community. So do you think that there are any essential creeds like to Christianity? Like, I know it's kind of hard to give, um, you know, necessary and sufficient conditions that are free from all counterexamples. It's, I actually think it's impossible to do that with any philosophically interesting term. But do you think there is such a thing as mere Christianity? Like, look, if you're a Christian, you have to at least believe this. It, it, it's complicated. So when you say, well, if you're going to be a Christian has to you have to believe this one of the the, the biggest questions there are the ambiguities that we would have to tease out mm-hmm. is the blurring between the soteriological interpretation of that question and the ecclesiological interpretation soteriologically that's in terms of salvation the issue the question would be are there certain minimal things you have to believe in order to be saved or to be a christian and, and thus saved reconciled to god in christ the ecclesiological one would be, are there is there something essential that you have to believe? Uh, and so in order to be a, in order to be a participant or member in the Christian community. And so those are two different takes, very different takes on the question. And what I generally try to steer away from is making claims about the soteriological side in terms of things you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Uh, I, I think that that's unwise for various reasons. Uh, so I focus instead upon the ecclesiological side. What, what do you have to believe in order to be a member of a Christian community? The problem with that question now in terms of posing it as a general is that there is no generic Christian community, just like there is no uh, nuclear family with two and a half children, right? Th- that would be an abstraction. So whenever you ask the ecclesiological question with respect to a faith community, it's always a specific community. And if you're going to talk about a Catholic community versus a Baptist versus a non-denominational charismatic versus a Lutheran or Eastern Orthodox or something else, they're all going to have different expectations. So it's difficult because the question is always posed with respect to some concrete historical manifestation of Christianity and your identification with that community. Yeah, um, it, it always surprises me when there are any Christians who issue these extremely confident proclamations. Like, if you disagree with my interpretation of the Trinity, then you're, you know, not a real Christian or something. And it's like, that seems pretty implausible. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, who knows if, you know, the disciples had that view of the Trinity or like any, <laughs> anyway. Um, 
this book though is aimed at people who you know regardless of any of that they they want christianity to be true or they hope it's true but they just doubt that it is true so what made you want to write a book aimed at those people first thing i'd want to say is that those people quote unquote we would actually divide into two overlapping groups so the first group are people that i call christian doubters so these are people who already identify as Christian. Maybe they've been baptized. They're a member of a church maybe, but they have some significant doubts or even disbelief about some major or important Christian doctrine or, or, or more than one. Uh, so, But they want to continue to identify as Christian. They want to find a way to be able to do that in good conscience, even though they may be doubting or questioning that doctrine. Or disbelieving it right altogether so for example like i had a student some years ago <clears throat> excuse me i'm a seminary professor and i had a student at my school evangelical broadly evangelical seminary who didn't believe jesus had risen from the dead this wasn't a belief that he would widely share with people right? but it was a belief he had but he was wanting to continue to be a christian he wanted to be a minister and he's trying to figure out what his faith looks like uh, while he's currently disbelieving that Jesus rose from the dead, although certainly hoping Jesus did or wishing he did. Um, and so that would be the first kind of group, somebody like that. They are ostensibly a Christian. They've come from a Christian background. They're in a Christian community, but they signif have significant doubt or disbelief. Second group would be people who are not currently identifying as Christian or part of a Christian community, but they are interested in becoming a Christian or open to it, not averse to it. Uh, it, it's something of significant interest to them that they might want to pursue it. And so I call these people sympathetic disbelievers. So we have the Christian doubters and sympathetic disbelievers. And I, I wrote the Doubters Creed to kind of reach out to both of those overlapping groups. Yeah, um, I've been running little polls here and there, like on my channel and, and on Twitter. Like roughly 80% of the audience is atheist or agnostic. And when I asked people if they wanted Christianity to be true, roughly like 15 to 20% across different platforms said they did want it to be true. Um, a lot of people claim to be indifferent. I'm not quite sure I buy that um, unless they think the reasons are sort of counterbalanced. But, you know, there's sort of a stock list of objections. You know, not all of them are bad, but it's just a common list of concerns that people raise when you ask questions like that. Um, the first one is often about doxastic voluntarism, just the idea that we can choose our beliefs. Um, and as I understand it, you don't accept that position, which, you know, is interesting because some Christians do, you know, they accept that you can just kind of choose to be an atheist and, you know, that it is a choice and that we're going to be sort of blamed for this choice. But most atheists, you know, reject that view, you know, partly part of the reason why I reject that view is because I didn't want to deconvert. Like it was a very like psychologically and emotionally and spiritually destabilizing event. And um, yeah, it was just very annoying to be told like, oh, well, you're choosing to disbelieve because you want to sin or something. And it's like, no, I don't want this to be happening. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I'm not happy about this transition. I just, you know, I can't pretend that this makes sense or that I believe this. But anyway, what do you think about um, doxastic voluntarism? Okay, so so the idea of, of doxastic volunteer, volunteerism is, is, again, this idea that your beliefs are controlled by your will. So you can will to, to believe certain things. Um, yes, I'm not a doxastic volunteerist. The first thing I want to say is that, actually, I don't think the people you just referred to are either, or at least they're certainly not unqualified doxastic volunteerists. Because, for example, they they may they may struggle with a phobia, let's say they have a fear of something. Uh, and if you were to say to them, well, just stop having that fear, right? Think something different, boom, like that, you're done. They're gonna recognize that they can't, they can't just shake that irrational fear of spiders or something, right? So that they recognize they don't have that immediate control. So, so when they say, yeah, but if you're an atheist, if you disbelieve in God's existence, or if you disbelieve in Christianity, you are now, uh, sinfully willing not to accept this as true, that is, I think, a very particular expression of doxastic voluntarism. So it's one where it's really restricted to um, people who happen to disbelieve in the existence of God or something. And I mean, I, I think on the one hand, uh, well, there there's why people believe that 
is I think largely because of a particular interpretation of Romans 1 in particular, where the Apostle Paul seems to say that God's evidence, uh, the, 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 the evidence of his existence and his nature is clear in what has been made so that people are without excuse. And that's a perfect passage to kind of proof text and say we can know a priori that any person who disbelieves in God's existence, well, because of this text, they must thereby be in rebellion against God because the evidence is manifestly present to them. And one of the things I like to point out when people take that approach to that text is that equally indicts or condemns any Christian who ever has any doubts in God's existence or his nature. So it's not necessarily that you disbelieve God exists or that God is good. But if you have any, any, ever any wavering doubt or question, that in and of itself, by that interpretation of Romans 1, would also be um, a result of your willfully denying the overwhelming evidence for God's existence and nature. And I think the vast majority of Christians recognize that there are times when God's presence and his nature seem less than fully obvious to them. That means that and they have to either say, I, in those moments, I'm sinfully suppressing the overwhelming evidence for God's existence or nature, or they have to recognize that I cannot simply interpret that verse as a proof text to condemn people who have less than full certainty in God's existence and nature. And if they give themselves that concession, they have to give atheists that concession as well. So I think it's, it's very difficult to maintain, if not impossible, I think, to maintain a consistent approach to doxastic voluntarism just mapped onto disbelief in God's existence and or nature. Uh, now, in terms of, of the will, just to return to the general question, I do think that we can impact what we believe in all sorts of ways. Uh, so, for example, by simply agreeing to participate to this interview, I'm already opening myself up to forming certain beliefs about who you are and what our exchange was like that I would not have acquired if I hadn't opened myself up to participating in the interview. So I can make certain decisions of the will that will result in me acquiring certain beliefs. The issue is, however, that I can't determine which beliefs I will end up holding. So if you think, for example, about a person who begins to suspect that they may have an irrational uh, prejudice against some ethnic group, and they say, okay, what I'm going to do in order to make sure that I don't have an irrational prejudice is I'm going to open myself up to participating in communities or, or events uh, or contexts in which there are large representations of that other group. They can do, they can make that decision. What they can't do is ultimately determine the kind of beliefs they will immediately acquire as a result. They may have a transformative experience as a result of interacting with members of the other group, which totally transforms what was their emerging prejudice. But it's also possible that they may have a bad experience, which may retrench them back into their prejudice even further. So again, you can make decisions about that will affect your beliefs, but you can't directly control them. And that becomes a real issue when you're like, okay, you have to believe this set of claims about who God is and how we relate to God if you are to be a Christian. And you're like, yeah, but I don't have the ability to make myself believe that. I can want to believe it. I can go to church, but I can't make myself sign on the dotted line and assent to it just by a force of will. And that's where it becomes a big issue. Yeah, like you can put yourself in conditions where, you know, you could probably cultivate or undermine a belief. Like if you expose yourself to defenses of theism every day and kind of like shut out any defense of atheism and you don't interact with atheists so you can caricature them however you like, then, yeah, you could probably cultivate different beliefs. But, um, you know, it, it's like it's not predictable at all. Like, I mean, I went to an apologetics conference, you know, I was kind of sent there as a teenager because I was doubting. And, you know, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> I became an atheist. Um, and uh, yeah, you just can't predict how these things are going to turn out. Like, you know, sometimes the people who defend Pascal's wager will talk about doxastic voluntarism. Like, yeah, obviously you can't just choose to believe that there's a tiger in the room or that the earth has 17 moons or something, but there are so, but those beliefs are kind of ridiculous. Like if you pick beliefs that you don't think are totally crazy, like if you think theism has like like a non-negligible chance of being true, then you could kind of push yourself in that direction by going to church, for instance. And um, the last time I went to church, it was actually a, a positive experience, but that was unusual. <laughs> um, like I sometimes half jokingly say that if 
I went to church, like that would just turn me into an anti-theist. Like I would actually become like, I would become a different kind of atheist probably if I went to church more regularly. Like the time before last I went, the pastor was, you know, preaching fire and brimstone about, you know, eternal conscious torment and like some of your neighbors are going to burn forever. And people were literally like cheering, like it was like a, like it was a concert or something. Like it was kind of disturbing. Like I turned to my wife and I mouthed, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like it was just so weird. Um, and like psychopathic seeming, but, um, anyway, yeah, like going to church is not like you can do things that, that might cultivate beliefs, but it, like you say, it's not really predictable. You can't, you can't know how it's going to affect you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and if, if, well, this, this is one of the things is, is people, if, if they, continually expose themselves to a particular expression of Christianity, good or bad, they can definitely increase the likelihood that they will retrench into particular opinions, whether good or bad, about Christianity. Uh, so I would definitely avoid churches that have that preaching style. Yeah, all I have to do is avoid uh, churches that talk about eternal conscious torment and eternal hell, which <laughs> might be harder, um, harder than it sounds. Um, are there any, I mean, since you're a theologian, I've like, there might just be random questions I want to ask you, but like, are there any like denominations that are reliably more universalist? Well, I mean, there's of course the Unitarian Universalist, but there, there's much more than universal reconciliation there. It's, uh, yeah. uh, there's no real doctrinal commitments required in that church. I mean, the, the issue probably is, is more like not about, and I, I there may be, there probably are denominations that have avowed commitment to universalism or universal restoration within their doctrinal commitments. I mean, there's 33,000 denominations, according to David Barrett's count in the World Christian Encyclopedia. So I'm sure that there's some in there that include universalism. But I think that the bigger issue would be to find communities which are open to universalism. And, you know, like I'm Baptist. So um, I'm a North American Baptist, and we have something called the North American Baptist Statement of Beliefs. Uh, and that Statement of Beliefs, it cites as part of its confessional statement uh, a passage from Matthew 25 that talks about the sheep and the goats and eternal punishment, the goats going into eternal punishment. But it just quotes that passage. It doesn't offer an interpretation of it, and that's included as part of the confessional statement. Well, two things you have to keep in mind, let's say, about a church like that. First of all, that uh, confessional statements are not, in a sense, creedal statements. They're more centering documents. And so there, there's all sorts of room, potentially, depend, depending on the community that appropriates the statement for how to interpret and apply it. So, for example, there are pastors within the North American Baptists who believe in annihilationism, resurrection to destruction. So those outside Christ cease to exist at some point which is an explicit denial of eternal conscious torment, which seems to be implied by the citation of the verse. And the fact that they are flourishing within the denomination suggests that that is recognized as one possible take on this confessional statement. It would be interesting to see whether a Christian in the North American Baptist could defend an evangelical universalist hope or conviction and also continue to minister within the denomination. And th those are just sort of the messy questions of history that sometimes you can only really sort out when a particular pastor or church leader or congregant adopts a conviction and shares it with the wider community, and then you just see what happens. I wanted to ask you about something that you raised a few times in the book, which was, you know, grace, not just for actions, but for beliefs, um, you know, which makes sense. Like, why wouldn't it extend to beliefs? Like if a serial killer can be forgiven then like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer can be forgiven, but not someone who doesn't have the perfect theology. That's a bridge too far for a perfectly loving God, I guess. Um, so yeah, like if it is the case that like God won't extend grace for beliefs, um, then, you know, what is the limit exactly? Like, you know, how right does your theology have to be? Because nobody has the perfect theology, you know, not totally. So, you know, even if you could just choose your beliefs at will, you might choose the wrong beliefs, you know, on the basis of the evidence that happens to be available to you. And um, yeah, so it, I'm just, uh, could you speak on that a little bit? Just, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I wrote a book a few years ago called What's So Confusing About Grace. And I went through one of the issues is like the ambiguity 
of what is the essential gospel that one has to believe. Uh, and that's that book explores some of those ambiguities and tries to say, well, let's look at these as features rather than bugs. Because assuming that God's not incompetent, then maybe the fact that there is a lack of clarity and reasonable room for disagreement is something God purposed from the beginning. And thus, maybe that should impact how confident we are in trying to impose one particular doctrinal grid. So, for example, people will sometimes cite Romans 10.9. In Romans 10.9, Paul says, uh, if you uh, believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So then you have a particular essential, right? Then you say, okay, so you have to believe he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And that's all that is required. Of course, that doesn't require belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't require belief in the second coming of Christ or in an afterlife. It presumably allows, allows a range of interpretation as to what Lord even means. I mean, you can go on and on and on. A Mormon could be a Christian by that definition. All sorts of groups could be Christian. So simply going to Romans 10, 9, other people are going to be like, oh, well, maybe you do require more. Okay, then what more do you require? And so that's when you get into all sorts of disagreements and debates. And one of the interesting things is that God, again, God didn't make this clear in the way that one would have expected. I mean, even if Romans 10, 9 were the silver bullet, as it were, why is it buried in a letter, one letter, half of the way through the Second Testament, right? Why isn't it kind of on the front cover? If you think, for example, that the Bible is meant to be analogously something like uh, directions for the cure that will save you from a pandemic that's about to take your life. Well, if the government issued those directions, this is how you apply the medicine that will overcome the virus and save your life. They're going to be as clear as possible. It's going to be like four clear bullet points. First, you, you take this pill, then you take this pill, uh, and then you do this and you do this and then you will be saved. And that's what the government would provide for you. Imagine if the government provided for you a 2000 page document written in multiple difficult genres of literature and embedded within there are a few points that you had to discover and find and extricate and then gather together. And that's what you have to do to be safe from the virus. And yet if that's your understanding of Christian doctrine that you have to believe these things, well then God is enormously inept because he gave us a 2000 page document rather than a four points, uh, bullet points on a sheet of paper. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, it, and that would like push you towards different understandings of God and like different understanding, like different soteriological views as well, I would think. Um, because if it's not like, if you do have this rigid view of like, you know, well, if you believe the wrong thing, you know, you're just not gonna get salvation and you're gonna suffer eternally for that. Um, yeah, I just feel like people like in some sense, this is kind of like a theological puzzle. And like, for some reason, most Christians, they they refuse to kind of solve it in any sort of way. And but anyway, if you insist on, you know, holding certain beliefs that, you know, are pretty mainstream, like pretty common, then you just I mean, you just made a decent argument against God, <laughs> like if that's the only way to understand him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, as a theology, it's very vulnerable to refutation then. Uh, and with just a couple of the other things, the ambiguities that it get introduced is, is the whole issue of age and cognitive ability. So at what point do you have to believe whatever it is you have to believe? So we don't even know what you have to believe essentially, assuming that's our model. So we'll just ask the next question. Well, when do you have to believe it? Even if we can't decide this Romans 10, 9 or something else, do you have to believe it when you're four years old, where you, when you're 12 years old, when your IQ surpasses 70? Uh, what is required that you have to believe? Again, there's no clarity on that. The instructions don't tell us. Um, they also don't tell us uh, whether you get a reprieve if you have some issue like Asperger's. Maybe Asperger's makes for the people who have, at least some people have it, less inclined for them to believe in the existence of God and some other things. Does God accommodate for that? Does he adjust the requirements for those people? What about a person with fetal alcohol syndrome or clinical psychopathy? A narcissistic personality disorder. Does Donald Trump get a get get an, um, less requirements because he doesn't seem to be able to feel guilt and remorse and compassion? Those are all legitimate questions to be asking. And one more, uh, well, two more. One more is is um, what what about if your understanding of what Christianity is and what it entails has been corrupted by Christians? 
what what if you were a Jew in the concentration camp of World War II and you rejected Christianity, but when you rejected it, you rejected the religion and the God that was slaughtering your people and you and had placed you into a concentration camp. Is that person required to accept Christian doctrine? And you could just go on and on. We could also talk about the development of historical doctrine, the idea that the doctrine of the Trinity didn't exist in the first or second century like it did in the fourth or fifth centuries. So, so were people at an earlier time required to accept the later def developments of the doctrine? These are the kinds of issues that if you really want to require, these are the beliefs you have to hold in order to be a Christian or in order to be saved or part of our community. You have to begin to address some of these issues. And you include this really great illustration from C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle about someone who, you know, ostensibly fought against Aslan. And um, it's funny how C.S. Lewis was so much cooler than uh, most of the people who like him today. <laughs> um, but could you uh, walk through that um, that story, like that part of The Last Battle? Because I feel like it, it really helps make this point well. So first of all, yeah, my, my first observation is just... I mean, C.S. Lewis, I think, in many ways, is a reflection of British evangelicalism more generally, which doesn't have the same kinds of hang-ups that American evangelicalism does. So back in 1999, I moved to England for a few years in order to uh, do a uh, doctorate. And I was at the first event where there was the local vicar, the local priest, and we were at a barbecue, community barbecue. And the priest, uh, the vicar, was, was drinking a Mike's Hard Lemonade. I'm like, what is going on here? Like the religious clergy will just drink a Mike's hard lemonade. <laughs> Whereas that would be inconceivable in the context where I grew up, where alcohol was like the devil's urine. <laughs> so um, this, that's sort of, for me, is just one example of how British evangelicalism has often avoided a lot of the culture war issues and the narrow theological vision that has characterized much of North America. So at the, in the last battle, so th this is a story is talking about a sort of eschatological or an end times vision. Uh, and within the story, you have this character named Emmet. And Emmet comes from the Hebrew word for truth. And he has worshipped a false god named Tash. Uh, but eventually, oh, and I should say that Tash actually has some pretty terrible attributes. This is a pretty nasty god. But that's what Emmet understood divine reality to be. And so he worshipped Tash. And then he realizes that Aslan is, in fact, the true God. And what he expects is that Aslan is going to judge him harshly for having worshipped Tash. But instead, there's a moment of revelation when Aslan reveals himself as the truth to Emmeth and then reveals to him that he would accept Emmeth's worship to Tash as worship unto Aslan because Tash did the best he could with all the knowledge he had at the time and his best understanding. So that even though his worship was directed toward a false god or an idol, it would nonetheless be recognized as worship of Aslan. And this is what point is now C.S. Lewis is making is this isn't just about a fairy story, right? This isn't just about a fantasy novel. This is a way of thinking about how God is present salvifically and relationally in other religious traditions and other doctrinal constructs, which may be very far outside of Orthodox Judeo-Christian tradition. So like when Emmeth was serving the good, you know, whether he knew it or not, he was serving Aslan. Um, so, you know, Aslan said something like, you know, the good belongs to me or something and, and evil belongs to Tash. Um, so I guess that, you know, moves us a little bit into your more like positive prescriptions about um, you know, following Jesus as an ethical teacher, you know, like following Jesus's moral teachings, um, you know, which are all centered around love. And yeah, so I guess that's that's sort of the more practical um, advice that you have for uh, Christian doubters and for sympathetic disbelievers. So there's a couple of big steps. Well, there's three big steps in the book. The first big step are to people that I call naturalists. Uh, and so these would be people that their, their most secure convictions, where they will stand, is that nature exists, but they're not willing to say that much anything beyond nature exists. That's the basic idea. And then there's another group, and these are people who are willing to say there is something more than nature. There may be a, a supernatural reality or some kind of reality that transcends nature, but they don't believe it is personal. So, and, and I give an example of the first group would be someone like Carl Sagan, who famously said the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. 
Second, uh, an example would be Albert Einstein, who believed there was something we could call God, but not in, in any personal sense. His God, he said famously, was like the God of Spinoza, which would be some 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 transcendent reality that goes beyond nature, but isn't personal in itself. Uh, and so for those two groups, I say, well, for the first people, if you just believe nature exists, you know what you can do if you are sympathetic to Christianity or you want to move in the direction of Christianity? Follow Jesus. Follow the life he lived and his teaching to the extent that you are able. And the core of that teaching here that we can focus on is love your neighbor as yourself. Now that that may seem for some people, oh, well, that's just simple, you know, that's just, that's not really substantial teaching. Yeah, but there's no Christian in history who's ever lived up to it. So in fact, that is a lifetime project to really try to love your neighbor and honor your neighbor in the same way that you would want yourself treated. So you can begin there. And if you pursue that confessional stance uh, in a way that is, is devoted to say, yeah, I want to really be like this person, Jesus, who taught me to love my neighbor as myself. That's a huge first step. And then for the other group, uh, those who believe there is some impersonal transcendent reality, I say you can also begin to try to love that reality uh, by developing patterns of devotion toward that reality, focusing upon that reality, allowing your life to be shaped by it. Um, and so I give examples there of, of people like J.L. Schellenberg and Ronald Dworkin, who are two atheists, but believe there is some uh, supernatural or, or transcendent reality beyond nature, which is impersonal. And if you pursue those two things, you right there have already achieved what Jesus summarizes being the summary of the law and the prophets. He famously said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And those are things you can begin to do, even when you are not yet at the point of being able to confess a Christian creed. So I think that's a pretty substantive ground on which to proceed. There's a question I've been asking myself and others lately, which is just, do you want Christianity to be true? And, um, you know, if you, and by the way, if you want some certain form of Christianity to be true, um, but would dislike it if some other form was true, then yes is still the appropriate answer. So, you know, a lot of people immediately respond like, oh, I don't think it would be very good if the majority of people were tortured for all of time after death. And it's like, yeah, I mean, neither would Christian universalists or, or annihilationists. Um, but yeah, if you want any form of Christianity to be true, then you do want Christianity to be true. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on, on why someone might want Christianity to be true? I know that the book is just aimed at people who in fact do kind of hope it's true or, or want it to be true. And, and the book's not aimed at people who are, you know, neutral or, or want it to be false, but why might, why might someone want Christianity to be true? Sure. Uh, great question. I first of all want to affirm your stance on it, because I think so often the whole question gets derailed by people taking the kind of Christianity that they find most offensive or unlikable or implausible and say, I don't want that to be true, in which case you're probably going to say, yeah, well, I agree with you on that. I mean, it's kind of like saying to someone, would you want to be married? And then if they're going to say, why would I want to be married to Jeffrey Dahmer, right, who you mentioned earlier? It's like, well, no, no, we're not talking about Dahmer. I mean, just married to anybody, right? The best possible spouse. Would you want to be married to them? And that's what we should, how we should approach the question. So why should we want it to be true? Uh, well, let me give you a few reasons. So one reason is it promises an afterlife of perfect joy in which you are existing in a state of perfection and not a state that is, I think, disconnected from the world around us now, but which is the, the heavens and earth that God created from the beginning brought to the perfection which he had purposed it from the beginning, which, by the way, is very much a C.S. Lewis idea as well, although I think it's really just a biblical and Christian idea. So if you think, what are the things I love most about nature and creation right now? Those are the kinds of foretastes of eternity from a Christian perspective, which couldn't be further from, from this sort of very bland view of heaven that so many people are raised with, where you sit on a halo forever and you sing hymns, or sorry, you sit in a cloud with a halo and play a harp and sing hymns. I mean, that sounds horrendous, right? Who would want that? That's that's not the Christian story, though. The Christian story is the redemption of creation. So I think that that is a thing that one should desire 
if, if one can find things that they love in creation and they want those to see those things brought to perfection. Um, another thing is just the idea of, of life continuing in its fullness in perpetuity. Now, of course, there are debates you're surely aware of people saying, yeah, wouldn't uh, a perpetual existence eventually get boring? And I would simply say, well, if an omnipotent, I think an omnipotent God can keep us busy. So, so we'll just leave it at that. Uh, another thing is, is when we look at the evil and suffering in the world now, now this is a really interesting one because I think there are intuitions that pull people in two different directions. If, if something horrendous, truly horrendous happens, one way to think about that is if there were a God who allowed that for any reason, that God must be a monster. And so some people reason, I actually would not want there to be a God because if there were, it would mean some agent allowed this thing to happen and purpose it to happen. And that's even more monstrous than the thing happening for no reason at all. The other alternative is to think, well, no, there, there, if there is some maximally great being who allow this thing to happen, that maximally great perfect being has some morally sufficient reason to allow it to happen. And under perhaps from the perspective of eternity, we'd be able to look back and understand why they allowed it to happen. And I would certainly prefer that latter thing to be true. So the most horrible, heinous things you can imagine, I would want there to be some reason why they happen rather than just to saying crap happens and there's no reason at all. But I understand that some people will have different intuitions about that. Yeah, no, there is a certain comfort in in thinking about some tragic suffering and saying like, you know, that was pointless. You know, the universe is indifferent. You know, that's ultimately why this happened. Um, yeah, there, there is something comforting about that. Um, but, you know, it is, it is undeniably good news. Like if theism is incompatible with gratuitous suffering, which a lot of people think it is, um, it's it might be, it's likely incompatible with gratuitous suffering. Well, that means there's no gratuitous suffering, which is only good news, I, I think, you know. Um, so especially, so, I mean, regardless of that, like let's say theism is compatible with with, with like truly pointless suffering, well, still, there's like this supreme being who's very, very good or, you know, identical with goodness itself, even though I'm not totally sure what that means. But still, like there's this being who's kind of in charge and things can't really truly go off the rails in this ultimately tragic or disastrous way, um, which, you know, might be comforting. <laughs> like, you know, human existence is not ultimately going to end in a terrible tragedy. Well, maybe still human existence, but not existence. Um, totally. So, you know, that's, that's good, <laughs> I guess. And yeah. um, there's also, you know, like you mentioned, the afterlife. Um, I think if Christianity is true, then universalism is probably true, which seems like the best way things could unfold from here. Like, I can imagine other ways that the universe could have been that would have been better. But if we're starting here, then it seems like that's the best way things could unfold from this point. Um, so yeah, if nothing else, like, I hope it's true. And also, um, I'm adding this like as an afterthought, but really it's, you know, it is pretty important that there are lots of people in my life who are really important to me who are, you know, kind of hurt and upset by the fact that I'm not a Christian, you know, like if I could just choose to believe, then I would, you know, solely for my mom's sake, you know, cause it's very upsetting to her. Um, part of why it's so upsetting is cause she, I think wrongly believes in eternal conscious torment. Um, and some other weird things. But yeah, I mean, if I could ease their burden, I would love to do that. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, like I said, I would like to believe it if I could. I, I would add just another one, it's a huge one, but uh, is the incarnation. So the, the idea that this transcendent divine being entered into history and became human in order to have a more intimate relationship with human beings and other creatures, I think is also just a pretty amazing story. You know, I, I remember um, when I was a little kid, I, I read H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine, and it had a huge impact on me because I remember when I was reading to the end of the book and the time traveler starts going forward into time. So he, he initially stops at like 823,000 AD or something like that. He keeps going eventually until it's like 30 million years into the future. Now, in retrospect, H.G. Wells was off on his timeline because this is when the earth has become a red giant and is about to swallow up. So the sun's become a red giant, it's about to swallow up the earth. That would probably be like 4 billion years, give or take. But he goes 30, 30 million years into the future and he sees the earth is, or sun is a huge orb in the sky. And then eventually he gets to the point where there's no life left on the earth and everything is dead and it's baking. 
And actually in that point, he arrives there and it's dark, but then suddenly the sun begins to crest on the horizon. And it's taking up about half of the sky. And then he says, I have to get out of here. I'm going to burn alive. And, and just the sense of desolation and hopelessness that this is our cosmic future, that we are all eventually going to face the heat death of the universe and everything's just going to creep toward absolute zero with this perfect thin distribution of matter and energy throughout a vast cosmic, dark, empty universe. I, I would rather the Christian story be true than that. So, and, and I agree with you about universalism as well. So the, the, the thing is, when I like to argue the point on universalism, I'm not a universalist in terms of confession or conviction, but I am definitely a hopeful universalist. Even if you think that the chance that universalism is true is like one in a million. Well, if you had a one in a million lottery ticket, or uh, for, a, for a vast financial prize, wouldn't you want to win? And wouldn't you have at least some basis to hope you will win? So I think that we have some basis to hope that all are reconciled and restored to God and Christ, and we definitely ought to then hope that it is true. Um, I have slightly stronger intuitions about that. Like, I, I think it is just totally, utterly obvious that eternal conscious torment is is wrong. Um, I've, yeah, um, Universalism, I'm not saying that's obvious, but it, I feel like if you walk through, um, you know, some of the attributes of God and some elements of, you know, kind of standard Christian theology, it just seems like it follows almost like I don't claim to, you know, be ab like undeniably right about that. But it, it does just kind of it, it seems more and more obviously right to me. And um, I've heard some Christians speculate that you know, the reason it seems that way to me and other atheists, um, well, first of all, they have some nastier speculations, but I'm saying the more charitable Christians are usually like, well, the, the philosophical case for universalism is, is the best, you know, and you as an atheist don't really care that much about the scriptural constraints. You know, you're not just like, oh, how do I, how do I make this all fit with the scriptural data or something? You know, you're just kind of thinking about it philosophically. And then from that perspective, yeah, universalism is like the easy winner. Um, do you think something like that is going on or or no? Well, I definitely think that uh, people have different data sets. So you're not going to be, first of all, particularly compelled when you're thinking about the issue by what Matthew 25 or, Roman, or sort of Revelation 14 or Revelation 20 seem to be saying, at least according to many interpreters. You're going to be paying much more attention to what your rational intuitions and, and the reasoning that flows out from them is on this issue and your moral intuitions that's fair enough, but for certainly some other people will be much more compelled by the authority of what they take to be the teaching of Matthew 25 or Revelation 14 or 20, which may trump other intuitions that they have that would pull them in the other direction. Um, the one, two things I would just add there. So one thing is, again, the annihilationist interpretation is also a, a competitor. So eternal conscious torment and universalism could both be false and annihilationism could be true. And I think it's much more, in, to my mind, plausible than eternal conscious torment. But the other thing I'd want to say is that there are versions of eternal conscious torment that are more plausible than other versions. So the version that has God actively torturing people, uh, I think, is probably the most implausible version. The version that's much more popular today is the version where people, uh, this the suffering that they experience is self-inflicted. And that's less problematic perhaps, although I tend to think the difference is somewhat negligible because it's still the idea that God himself is sovereignly purposing their self-inflicted misery as punishment. So whether God's inflicting the punishment by actively torturing them or whether he's allowing them to torture themselves and appropriating that as their just punishment, I think you still have the same problem essentially. And so it is, I think, still a deeply problematic view. Yeah, I, I mean, some Christians make it too easy, you know, to be an atheist on this subject. They'll, you know, they'll just say, like, you can't be a Christian and not accept eternal conscious torment. It's like, oh, well, then Christianity is false. That was easy. I guess yeah. I can move on with my life now. Um, I mean, I, I would think, so on, on the one hand, we're already dealing with, with people who are significantly open to Christianity being true. 
Uh, so not people who think it's like equivalent to a flying spaghetti monster, right? Like it's just not going to work for them, and and it wouldn't wouldn't be good for them in good conscience to try to pursue something they find to be absurd. But but I do want to so to drill down. So again, what is what is the starting point? Well, the starting point is love your neighbor as yourself, and I I try to show how the teaching of Jesus on this is quite profound, and challenging and noble. And I think most people, if you know, we have like the the famous caricatures or infamous caricatures of the teaching of Jesus. Bertrand Russell, for my mind, is, is a good example of that. People who didn't really take Jesus seriously and what he was saying seriously. But I think that if you take Jesus really seriously and you, that living like this is a very noble thing, whether, whether or not you end up becoming a Christian, if you strived in your life to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, all things being equal, that's a life well lived, certainly a life better lived than, than one that didn't strive to do that. So why not begin on that project? And, and then if you're beginning on that project of truly loving your neighbor as yourself, and you're also interested in Christianity, well, then just frame it in terms of a devotion directed toward Jesus. That makes sense to me. So in the book, I give an illustration of two different responses to the genocide in Rwanda. The one response was from a Christian pastor named Elizabeth Nikotarama, who was Hutu, which was the group that was committing genocide on the Tutsi population. Uh, so he was he was Hutu, and some of his congregants were Tutsi, and they were hiding, and they reached out to him begging him for help. And instead of providing them help, he sent in the militia to slaughter his own congregants. On the other hand, you had a Muslim named Abaye Diagni, who wasn't even himself from Rwanda, but he was working with UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda at the time. And every day he defied the orders of uh, Romeo Dallaire in the, in the compound, and he went out and he saved the lives of Tutsis risking his own life in the process. And he kept doing that and saved dozens of people until eventually he was killed in the genocide. Now, if I think I'm gonna stand, if, if it turns out that Christianity is true, if it turns out that there is this morally perfect being standing behind it all, and I'm gonna be called to give an account, would I rather have the life and legacy of Nikotarama, the confessing Christian who committed genocide or of the Muslim, or you could say the, the naturalist or the atheist who gave their life protecting the innocent. And I would say personally, I would rather have the life and legacy of Mabaya Diagni, even if I had a whole lo lot of Christian doctrines wrong. Seems to me that ultimately that love of neighbor is gonna trump whether my doctrine of the Trinity or of the incarnation was perfectly orthodox. So I just think from a practical sense, loving your neighbor as yourself and taking that seriously and living a life of self-sacrifice and service to others is an enormously compelling and worthy vision that could grip any one of us. And everything you just said seems perfectly consistent with the teachings of Jesus, but I, I know that it would totally scandalize, like, you know, most of the Christians, if not all of them that I grew up with, like, you know, the fact that you're actually saying that, like, the greatest of these is love and, like, you know, that is the sum of the law and everything. It's like, okay, well, you know, and then you just give that example, you just gave that example with the genocide in Rwanda. And it's like, doesn't that seem to be an implication that like the Muslim was the greater servant of God because he was the greater servant of the good? You know, he was the greater servant of this like ideal of, of perfect love, even though he had his theology was way farther off than the, um, than the Christian pastor. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, this doesn't seem like an unchristian thing to say. It seems like a Christian thing to say in a very literal sense, but it would still scandalize most Christians. I think one of the problems, and there are a lot of problems here, but one of the problems is there's going to be so much misunderstanding at the outset that I find you constantly have to deal with. So, for example, people are going to say, what, so you're saying he's saved because of his good works? No. What we're saying is the life lived in relation to God. This is how it looks. If a person is in self-ethic relationship with God in Christ, it is the kind of life that was lived by Mabaya Diagni rather than Elzefanikatarama. Not that one gets saved by works and the other not. So one of the challenges is often to rebut and deconstruct all of these negative assumptions that people are going to have when you begin to try to change or challenge their paradigm. I guess um, just to play devil's advocate, it, it does sound a little bit like you're saying, um, you know, works over over faith, you know, especially, you know, just given the central theme of this book, it does seem like you're saying like living the Christian life is sort of more important to actually being a Christian than, um, you know, having the right, you know, the exact right theology. That is true, but it doesn't follow that it has anything to do with soteriology or salvation. 
It's not because you've done a certain number of works that you are considered worthy to enter God's presence. It's always grace, which is by definition unmerited favor. That's what reconciles and restores us to God in Christ. The question is, what is the form of life that is being restored to God in Christ look like? Is it the kind of life that produces works or not? And in fact, this is just a common theme in the history of Christian theology, that a life that is reconciled to God in Christ is the kind of life that's producing good works. So this is what the Epistle of James is talking about at length. Uh, the issue is that often Christians have assumed, yeah, but in order for all those good works to count as something, or to count as evidence that God is working salvifically in the person's life, they also have to have confessed a particular creed, a particular set of doctrines. And that is the thing to, to rethink or to challenge, not least because you get into all that set of issues we talked about earlier, where people have no agreed upon list of doctrines, or, or whether when you have to believe them, or under what conditions. You know, another thing we didn't talk about yet was what degree of conviction do you have to have? So um, we touched on it when we talked about Romans 1 and belief in God's existence and nature. But this is another thing. It's like it's one thing to believe. It's another thing to believe strongly. So if, let's say, you have a, your child is, is accused of killing somebody else, and they say, I didn't do it. You believe me, don't you? And you say, yeah, versus, yeah, I believe you, right? Which is the one that's going to get the child really relieved, right? It's obviously the strong degree of conviction. And so by the same token, if we're required to have a strong degree of conviction in these particular doctrines, how strong does it have to be in order for it to count? So I think that you just get enormous problems when you try to define the salvific essence of Christianity in terms of doctrinal ascent versus a life lived in form of pursuit of the good. So let me just ask you then um, about the Rwandan example, because with some of the people who would disagree with you, they might say, okay, I might be a little less ashamed to stand before God if I were, you know, the Muslim guy instead of the Christian guy. But ultimately, I'd still rather be the Christian guy because the Muslim guy is either going to hell or going to be annihilated. And the Christian guy is, you know, forgiven. Um, you know, he's going to be saved. So do you think that um, they're both saved like on your view um i know that you can't know for sure but like you know they'll have they'll happily like the fundamentalists will happily answer no the muslim guy is in hell <laughs> um so like uh i mean like what do you think uh what do you think on along those lines well th this kind of issue it's an important question it's definitely going beyond the book the daughter's creed where i simply want to give people a way to begin to move into further identification and affiliation with the Christian community, even when they have doubts or disbeliefs. But taking that in mind and to answer the question, I mean, one of the big issues here is, does the process of repentance and restoration end in this life or can it continue posthumously or after death? And if the latter, well, then you could have a deathbed conversion. Let's say, you know, you have Hitler or whatever, right? And, Let's say they had a genuine deathbed conversion or something. You say, yeah, but you're still just embarking on the process of repentance and restoration. It's going to take a long time for you to reconcile with all those that you've offended against. Maybe it'll take the equivalent of untold millennia before you are fully reconciled and restored. It's not just a twinkling of an eye. Uh, and this is, of course, something like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So there would definitely be the possibility of a posthumous purgatorial existence that seeks to bring about restoration and repentance and reconciliation among God's creatures prior to entry into a restored creation. Um, yeah, I mean, like most universalists I know are like purgatorial universalists. Like they think that the story doesn't end with our deaths, like, you know, this growth and evolution and, um, you know, moving towards being more godlike, you know, it goes on for a long time after our deaths. So um, I'm I'm sorry if this is an annoying question, but let's just assume that that's true. You'd think that the maybe the Muslim guy would have less time in purgatory, right? <laughs> than the, he's a little closer to being uh, Christ-like than, than the Christian pastor who had his congregants massacred. Based upon their lives lived in this life, I would agree with that. Interesting. Um, so it's a good thing this is an atheist channel. <laughs> not, many, not, not many Christians will see it. Um, so I guess before we go, I, I did just want to mention, um, I wanted to bring up one other topic, which is um, sort of the debate between William James and William Clifford about, you know, the will to believe and, and whether your desires can ever be legitimate in, you know, in some kind of like, deci like decisive way. 
like, and I tend to agree with William James that like, if you think the evidence is counterbalanced, you know, like if you're an agnostic and, and you, you know, that type of agnostic where you think there's good evidence on both sides, you don't know which one is true. Um, then why wouldn't you go with the one that has the more pragmatic utility to it? You know, if you are in my position, then why wouldn't you? So um, the thing stopping me there is that I'm not really agnostic. You know, the, the evidence of evil does kind of shove me way over farther on the atheist side of the spectrum. But um, yeah, I just was curious to uh, to hear what you thought about that dispute, you know, whether the, whether the pragmatic utility can be like a tiebreaker in those kinds of situations. Absolutely, I think it can. Now, we do have to distinguish grounds of belief that there's rational grounds of belief, but there's also prudential grounds of belief. And maybe the rational ones are based upon evidence that directly increases or decreases the likelihood of a proposition's being true. But the prudential reasons could be ones that just are draw upon a wider data set. That is, it, it is advantageous for the organism to believe it is true. And when when you are in the place where there's a close balance, as you've said, between these two, or even in, in a forced moment. So, I mean, one of the examples that um, that William James gives is where you're descending a, a mountain and a glacier and there's a storm rolling in and you come across a crevasse and you're not sure if you can jump the crevasse or not. But if you try to go back up the mountain or if you linger on the edge of the crevasse, you're going to get engulfed in the impending storm. The only thing at that moment you have to do is to believe as best you can that you can clear it and then try to jump and clear it. And in that case, it's maybe not even 50-50, but still it would seem all things being equal to kind of steal your courage, think I'm going to jump this crevasse and then take a run at it and do your best. And, and I think that there could be many circumstances that are like that. Now, of course, Clifford's concern, and this is what his main concern, it's been years since I read the essays, but his main concern is, is that if we do this, uh, and we begin to get into the habit of doing it, it eventually, it might seem a small thing, but eventually become a big thing until you rationalize the fact that a ship which is not seaworthy is still seaworthy and you go out and sail the ship and it sinks and everybody drowns. And so you have big negative consequences that come from seemingly small decisions to base your belief on prudence rather than rational grounds. And I just think that, that that's a slippery slope fallacy to my mind that you're not necessarily, like these are relatively narrow restricted cases where, the, the, as you said, the balance is close, where there are good prudential grounds for belief. And so I don't think that Clifford's concern is a legitimate one, that this is gonna kind of lead to a collapse of epistemic virtue and some terrible consequences like ships uh, sinking mid-ocean. So that'd be my quick response. I guess I would, I would also just add, um, thank you for that, by the way, but I, I would add that um, there are other pragmatic benefits to to contemplating and introspecting on what you want to be true. Like, it, it's not just about, you know, avoiding cognitive biases, um, you know, and it's not even just about, you know, taking William James's side in that particular dispute. But I think that um, it can help you see sort of the bright side of your worldview. Like, it can help you see what your beliefs offer someone. Um, in your position. And it, it could be a source of gratitude. Like if you if you allow yourself to explore that terrain of like, you know, what do I actually want to be true? Then you might come away with like a new source of, of gratitude in your life. You'll see an upside, you know, to what it is that you believe, you know, for good epistemic reasons, hopefully. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that would be a good thing. But I just feel like um, the way that a lot of Christians talk about wanting Christianity to be true or something, like a lot of atheists kind of overcorrect and overreact um, to that. And then they have this like allergy to talking about what they want to be true or something. Um, they almost talk about it the way that Muslims talk about the jinn or something like, don't talk about it. Don't think about it. <laughs> like, don't even, what you want is totally irrelevant. Don't even let your mind go there. Um, but in reality, you know, I think it's, it's worthwhile to introspect and, uh, reflect on what you, what you want to be true. So anyway, um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I got the book. I read it. I really loved it. And uh, yeah, for the 15 to 20 percent of um, people who watch this channel who also are atheists who want um, want it to be true, I would I would highly recommend it. Well, and I'll just say uh, you mentioned the bright side mm -hmm. and, and that put into my mind the uh, old song from Monty, Monty Python, The Meaning of Life. Always look on the bright side of life. So that's like a great basis on which to end the conversation, I would say. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Everson. All Appreciate right, with it. that, yeah, we'll see you next time.
That was my conversation with Dr. Randall Rouser. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to the channel, or you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash counter or slash Walden pod. So thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will see you next time.